For those who have been coming to this church for a while, you're probably tired of hearing of the recap. But there's always somebody who hasn't been here for this entire series. And so briefly, we're doing a series based on the stained glass windows that, that surround our church. Beginning, we began with the creation, the fall, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And now we're on this one that looks kind of like a funny lamb carrying a flag, and we're calling that the church. The church. We decided that the way we're going to handle the church is not just go back through church history and tell you all the events that have happened in 2,000 years, but that we would use the seven churches of Revelation to highlight how God has been in the midst of his church all this time, how Jesus has been in the midst of his church all this time. And that's the thing about the message to the seven churches, is that Jesus says, I am with you always. He was with each and every church, whether they needed rebuke and censure, whether he was able to pat them on the back, it was still his church. It was the apple of his eye. And no church was totally bad, and no church was totally good. They each had their strengths and they each had their weaknesses, although there are some There are some who, um, there are a couple of churches who don't get a real glowing commendation, and that includes Laodicea that we will look at this morning. But yet, when you read through the message to Laodicea, you cannot help but see and hear Jesus' love and concern for what's going on in that church. As we began this series, we, we, we mentioned that the message of the seven churches applies to the literal church to which it was written, although it's really about the characteristics of that city because we don't know what was going on specifically in each individual church. It applies to certain periods of history, beginning with the early apostolic church and to the present day and up until the time Jesus comes back. And yet, we can also apply the characteristics of the individual churches, whether we live in that era or not, to our own lives. Where there's warning about false teaching, we need to be aware of false teaching. Where there's, where there's a reminder of, of how faithful a church was, we need to let Jesus commend us for our faithfulness. And we need to commend one another. And so, a reminder before we launch into the message to Laodicea is that this is a church that Jesus is watching out for. Just as a father watches out for his ch children, sometimes from a distance, but he's there because he wants the very best for them. Sometimes there are things that are self-evident the very first time we hear them. You know what I'm talking about? Let me give an example. A number of years ago, I went to a, a seminar on working with inactive members, and it was giving some communication skills and teaching some. And one of those communication skills was learning to identify the skunk and the turtle in any relationship. Anybody heard about this before? I know a couple of you have. The skunk and the turtle. 
What that basically says is that, that every relationship develops a way to deal with crisis. And whether it's husband and wife or father and daughter, father and son, mother, whatever, a boss, employee, the words almost tell you what I'm going to say next. In a crisis, the skunk lets you know without reservation that they're not happy. Right? The turtle withdraws into its shell for protection. The skunk says, let's deal with this. The, the turtle says, in time. And already, husbands and wives are nudging themselves, each other. And you've already dis dis decided which one you are. Now, just one thought, though. You can be a skunk in most relationships and a turtle in another. My wife was greatly relieved to learn this theory because I had a huge shell when we first got married. And there was reasons behind that, and she came from a family that everybody was a skunk. And so they were used to talking about things. And I came from a family where there was some anger issues, and I determined I'd never do that, so I really turtled big. And the first argument we had, I walked out. And she said, what's that all about? And two or three years later, I learned this, and I came home and said, guess what? I'm a turtle. And she said, what's that? And it's helped our marriage immensely since. Uh, my children say I've become a, a snapping turtle, but that's another whole story. <laughs> why, why do I tell this? Be because you don't have to have anybody prove to you the truth of the turtle and the skunk, do you? You don't have to have a research paper done to prove to you the validity of the turtle and the skunk. And we don't need a research paper to show us the validity of applying the message to Laodicea to, to our time. It is so evident. And it becomes evident when you look at the characteristics of the city of Laodicea. The first characteristic is that Laodicea was a very wealthy and for its time modern city. It was known for its banking. It had a number of banks. Royalty would come and do their banking there because they trusted the banks that were there more than in other places. It was so wealthy that when a, an earthquake came in 60 AD and destroyed it, and the emperor said, let me send you some FEMA funds. And they said, no, thank you. We don't need your help. We can take care of ourselves. Keep that thought in mind. It was known for having a large, very prosperous market area. It was a rich farming area that produced a very special kind of wool that they would dye black, and, and it was known for that. And we'll talk about that again in a little bit, in a moment. It was so prosperous that it had three theaters. It had a water system that would bring fresh water from far away that could literally come down the hill and be pumped up into the city. It had indoor plumbing. This was a city that lacked absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, here's a picture. Here's a picture of, of part of that 
what's left of that water system. You can see it had, wasn't on a flat surface. It wasn't even always going downhill. There was ups and downs. They were so prosperous and so well-to-do. That wasn't all. They were noted for their fashion. Not only did they have this black garment, this black wool that they would make the robes of, in which it identified them as, as people who lived in Laodicea, but they had all kinds of, of fashion. They were really like the Paris of their day. They, they were the leading edge of fashion. They were known for their leisure and entertainment. They had, they had gymnasiums. They had bathhouses. They had a library with individual rooms where people could go and study. I mean, you name it, they had it all. They had three theaters. They had, they had a sports arena. It took them 12 years to build their amphitheater, their stadium. I mean, 12 years to build their stadium. And this is a picture of one of their amphitheaters. You can see how big it was just from that picture, even though it's in ruins. This was a city that lacked nothing. Not only that, it was a place of religion. The temple of Karu, or as it is elsewhere known as Asculapius, the snake god, was there. It was the temple where they worshipped the snake god who was known as the great physician and who was a false messiah. At that temple, they would make a, a, a famous eye salve called collyrium, and there they would anoint people's eyes with the eye salve. But also near the city was a number of hot and cold and lukewarm springs, mineral springs. About six miles to the north, there was the city of Heropolis, and there were these huge mineral deposits, much like you see up at Yosemite, only even bigger. In fact, on a clear day, you can see these from Laodicea, it was told. And the mineral water would run down into the Lycus River, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it would be lukewarm, filled with minerals, useless, useless. And so the city was known for its healing properties. It was known for its culture. It was known far and wide for the fact that this was a city that needed no one else. With those things in mind, let's reread the passage. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write these words, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. Now keep in mind what we've discovered about the city. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, and I put in parentheses, a better translation is, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. When having everything means having nothing. When having it made means you've got nothing to fall back on. That's the story of Laodicea.
notice, do you notice how this description fits the characteristics of the city to a T? To a T. This is a city who thinks it has everything, a church who thinks it has everything. Jesus describes himself first to this church, and notice how he wants the church to know him. He says the words of the amen, the, the amen. That, that's the word for so be it at the end of a prayer. That's the Hebrew word. It, it means you can count on this. You can trust this. And then it goes on, the faithful and true witness. That faithful and true witness is the Greek way of saying amen. A, a witness was somebody who would, who would testify in court and tell what the truth was about something. Jesus is saying, I'm, what I'm going to be telling you, you can count on. It's going to be absolutely true. And then it goes on to say something interesting, the beginning of God's creation. To this church, it mentions the beginning of God's creation. Why is that? Because man did nothing to create himself and give himself life. And man can do nothing to give himself spiritual life either. And this is a church who thought it had spiritual life in itself. Or should I say this is a church who thinks it has spiritual life in itself too often. There's another kind of interesting point, and this is kind of a side point. But those who believe that, the, that the, this refers to the church from the middle 1800s on to the end of time, living in the period in which evolution is so prominent, Jesus depicts himself as the one who's the beginning of creation. I don't think that's just, just a coincidence, do you? He goes on. He says, I know your works. And that's not good. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You aren't on fire for me. Nor, nor do you give me the cold shoulder. You just kind of apathetically sit back. He said, I know your works. You think you are rich. You think you are rich. And you prosper. And you need nothing. But notice the description, not realizing you are wretched. That means someone who has nothing to offer. Not knowing that you are pitiable, someone to be pitied. Not knowing that you are poor, a beggar, a pauper. Not knowing you are blind, sitting in darkness, and naked, filled with shame. Not good words for a church, is it? Are they? What's interesting is about this saying is, for you think I am rich. There are many Bible commentators who believe it's referring to Hosea 12, verse 8. Hosea 12, verse 8, where it's speaking of Ephraim, and Ephraim was the, the 12 northern tribes who, who thought they could, they could take care of themselves by creating other idols and other gods and telling God, this is how we're, going to, how we're going to live our lives. We don't need you. We can take care of ourselves, thank you. He says, Ephraim said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. The riches that Laodicea thought they had 
was their own works and their own righteousness and their own good deeds. And Jesus, in effect, is saying, all your righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. And that's the polite translation of that. At the risk of maybe, well, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. It's really referring to the rags used on a monthly basis. You understand that, right? It would be a time when, when a woman would be unclean, and he says, all your righteousness leaves you unclean. Jesus doesn't stop there with his church. He goes on, but before he goes on, I want to share something with you. A couple of quotes about the state of the Laodicean church, which is depending on its own righteousness, depending on its own good works. The first one is from Martin Luther, who discovered, just, discovered rediscovered justification by faith, among others, other people, one of the stars of the Reformation. He says, it is the nature of God that he makes something out of nothing. Consequently, if someone is not nothing, that is, if they think there's something, if someone is not nothing, God can make nothing out of him or her. Men make something into something else. They think they have something, they make it bigger than it is, is what he's saying. But this is vain and useless work. Thus God accepts no one except the abandoned, makes no one healthy except the sick, gives no one sight except the blind, brings no one to life except the dead, makes no one pious except sinners, makes no one wise except the foolish, and in short, has mercy upon no one except the wretched, and gives no one grace except those who have not grace. Did I go back too far? I think I got it there. Oh, we're missing one? Okay. She's going to have to catch me up on it, all right? I'll just, let me go back and finish reading it. God accepts no one except the abandoned, makes no one healthy except the sick, gives no one sight except the blind, brings no one to life except the dead, makes no one pious except sinners, makes no one wise except the foolish, and in short, has mercy upon no one except the wretched and gives no one grace except those who have not grace. Consequently, no proud person can become holy, wise, or righteous, become the material with which God works or have God's work in him or her, but he remains in his own works and makes a fabricated, false, and simulated saint out of himself. In other words, a hypocrite. It's pretty strong words. Let me read you the words of someone else. This is found in Thoughts for the Mount of Blessings, page 7. He who feels whole, who thinks that he is reasonably good and is contented with his condition, does not seek to become a partaker of the grace and righteousness of Christ. Pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give. There is no room for Jesus in the heart of such a person. Those who are rich and honorable in their own eyes do not ask in faith and receive the blessing of God. They feel that they are full, therefore they go away empty. Those who know that they cannot possibly save themselves or are of themselves do any righteous action are the ones who appreciate the help that Christ can bestow. 
They are the poor in spirit who declares them to be blessed. Did you notice what she said? Those who think themselves righteous are deceiving themselves. Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop by just defining what our need and what our lack is because the, the easiest, strongest temptation we all face is to depend upon ourselves and to trust in what we can do instead of trusting in what God can do. It's how sin began in the first place. I, I want you to notice the next part of the verse. It says, I counsel you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He tells us what we need, and he says, I want you to buy of me. Wait a minute. He's just described us as being paupers and beggars. Where do paupers and beggars get money to buy gold and fine raiment and expensive eye salve? It's almost similar to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55 when he says, Come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend for your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And then later it says, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. That which is required in order for us to buy from Christ what we need, what he provides, the only thing we can purchase it with is our wills by surrendering them to God. That's it. That's it. I, I want you to notice. I want you to notice what it says we're to buy. We're to buy gold refined by fire. Often that's referred to as faith working through love, which is another way of saying a godly character because when faith works through love, we become like God. Because the fulfillment of the law is loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. I, I want you to notice it says, buy of me gold, buy of me white raiment. There's only one kind of white raiment the Bible mentions, and that is the robe of Christ's righteousness, which we are told is without one single thread of human devising. Not one thread. Buy of me eye salve, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Because just as, as blindness means you must have light to see, the Holy Spirit enables us to see. And Scripture is clear in so many places that apart from the Holy Spirit, we are blind. In fact, one of the interesting things about the, the ministry of Jesus was that Jesus often referred to the scribes and Pharisees as those being blind and to those who they thought were blind as being those who really saw. Do you remember those stories? Only the Holy Spirit can make us see. I, I want you to notice, it says, buy of me gold, buy of me white raiment, 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 buy of me salve that you may see. And once again, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, in order that you won't be naked and ashamed, that you'll see and that you'll be truly rich. Those whom I love, I reprove 
and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You know what's interesting about that word repent? Repentance we often think about in terms of I repent because I, I got angry at Pastor Gilbert this week. I didn't, okay? So I repent because I got angry and said some bad, you know, just treated him badly. Repent means you're heading one way and you turn the other direction. If you think about what is said in this letter, what Laodicea needs to repent of is not their false doctrines. They're not mentioned. What Laodicea needs to repent of is not their immorality. It's not talked about. What Laodicea needs to repent of is the fact that they think they don't need Jesus. Where did I get that from? Revelation 3.20, a very familiar passage. Behold, you could, almost, you could say it with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Now, there's something interesting about this passage. We've all seen this picture. It's Warner Solomon's picture of Christ at the heart's door. We often talk about Christ knocking at the door of our hearts, our individual hearts, because it says, if anyone hears. But that word for anyone means if any hear. And secondly, this is written not to individuals. It's written to the church. And while we can apply it to individuals, and I'll talk about that individually, I'll talk about that in a moment, I believe the primary application of Jesus knocking at the door is that he's knocking at the door of the church. I asked Katie Pershing to draw a picture for me. I couldn't find any pictures of Jesus knocking at the door of a church. The United Nations, Harry Anderson did that. A door that looks like a cozy home, there are several of those. But you may not be able to see it, but he's there at the door and there's tears coming down his cheeks because he's knocking and the church hasn't invited him in yet. And you say, you sure about that, Pastor Gary? You sure you're talking about the church? All you've got to do is look at the first part of the letter and you know that Jesus isn't there. He may be on the outside trying to do something. He, he's watching over the church. He's warning the church. But it says, I'm knocking at the door of the church. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in. Now, now there's good news about that. If you're living in a church of Laodicea, you don't have to have Jesus outside your life. He will come into you individually. That is applied, can be applied that way. Secondly, the only way Jesus comes into the church is through the lives of those individual members who have invited him into their lives and bring him into the church with them. And so the good news for us this morning, afternoon, is that this church does not to be, need to be a church that has Jesus outside the door knocking. The good news is that Jesus says, I will come in and I will eat with you. Those are intimate words in that world. To eat with somebody means you're sharing their very life and they're sharing their life with you. It's looking forward to the time when, when we will eat the banquet in heaven with Jesus. The good news is, he says, I will have fellowship with you. And finally, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne 
as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's the symbol, the kind of throne that is used there is a, it was a special throne that more than one person could sit on and they would rule together. Now, I want to go back to the one, to the one who conquers. What is it that we're conquering? We refer to that most of the time as we're conquering our individual sins and it can be applied that way. But I want you to notice in context of this letter, what we must conquer more than anything else is our stubborn, rebellious refusal to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives while we try to run our own lives ourselves. It's our stubborn refusal to put on his robe of righteousness rather than try to continually wear our own rags of righteousness. It's a stubborn refusal to think that we have all, all the truth we need to know and so we don't have to study anymore because we already know it. But to allow his eyesav to open our eyes and see new things as well as the old things. New things that make the old things more valuable. He who conquers will sit on my throne, even as I sat with my father on his. As we conclude this series on the seven churches, I want to remind you, the main message is simply this. The church is the apple of God's eye. Regardless of how far the church may have strayed, I'm not saying everybody's going to be saved. Don't misunderstand this. Regardless how far the church may have strayed or how how well or how badly we have kept Jesus at a distance. He is still there, calling us, inviting us, begging us, pleading with us to allow him to be our Savior and Lord and to transform and change our lives. For those who are wondering, we didn't cover everything because we, we couldn't possibly cover everything in the seven churches. I've, I've created a chart, and this is going to be available at the end, that talks about the various aspects of each one of the churches. And it would, you, if you want one, you can take it with you. And if that will spark more study on your, your part, I, I hope it will. Also on the website, there, there was a, at each, with each sermon on the different churches, there's a, a, some chapters from Taylor Bunch's book on the seven epistles of Christ. But, but I want to end with you looking at this picture that Katie drew. I want our church to be a church that doesn't have Jesus on the outside. I want our church, as we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, I want our church to be a church that in everything we teach, every single doctrine we hold, that people are seeing Jesus in what we say, what we do, and how we treat each other. Don't you want that? I want our church to be a church in which the character of Jesus is winsome and drawing. And people want to be part of us because they will say of us, these are people who've been with Jesus. I'm going to tell you something and just to share something because I want you to know how that does work in our society today. Some of you may not be aware of this, but our church, along with La Sierra University Church, and Hallie's been part of this too, we, we go down the street here every Sunday morning and present the Protestant worship service uh, at Valencia Terrace. And our young people go the first Sabbath of every, of every month, 
and they go down there and sing and talk and just be with them. Two weeks ago, one of the men there came up to me and said, if I were a younger man and weren't so set in my ways, I think I'd want to become an Adventist because your people are some of the kindest, most loving people I've ever met. I had a lady come up to me a couple, a couple weeks ago and she said, I'm a Presbyterian. And I said, it's nice to know. And she said, I'm just moved here because my family's here and I'm trying to get my affairs in order. She said, I'm not going to die right away, but I just want to have everything ready. And I called the, the local church and, and because I'm not, I'm not a member, they, I can't have my services there. Would, it, would an Adventist church allow me to have my services in your church? And would you conduct them? You know what my answer was, don't you? I'd be honored. We can have all the right doctrine. We can know all the prophecies. But if Jesus is still standing outside the door knocking, we will not have the right message. But if he's been invited in by Sue and Brian, by Debbie and, and David, but you go, go, if he's been invited in by every single one of you here, then when we give the message of our doctrines and our truths and the, and the prophecies we believe in, they're going to know it's not just about having the right message. It's about knowing the right Savior. And when we have that, we will be calling people back to know God, whom to know is life eternal. We will be calling people back and we'll be saying, choose you this day whom you will serve and let it be the Lord as, as Joshua did. Or as Elijah did, we will say, I will serve the Lord. Will you stand as the praise team leads us? As we think about preparing for the end of time in the song, These Are the Days of Elijah. <laughs>